Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the big stories of the week with regards to guns, Walmart is discontinuing sales of short barrel rifle ammo, handgun ammo, and handguns altogether after facing backlash for not pulling weapons after two deadly shootings in its stores. For more on this story, we spoke to Lauren Thomas, retail reporter at CNBC. Walmart announced earlier this week on Tuesday that it will no longer be selling handguns. So stepping out of that category entirely last, it was the last state left that it was still selling handguns and will no longer be selling handgun ammunition and also short barrel rifle ammunition, which Walmart pointed out can be used in some military style weapons. So obviously this is in wake of two shootings, unfortunately, that took place at Walmart stores earlier this summer. And it it took some time, I think, for CEO Doug McMillan. You know, he had said for a few weeks here now that they were trying to think through this deliberately. I'm sure shoppers stand on both sides of the gun debate. So I think it took some time for Walmart to ultimately decide what they were going to do. And I think they took a pretty big stance earlier this week in announcing that this is what they're going to do. And it, it won't be an overnight change. If you have some of this stuff in your local Walmart store, you won't see it removed overnight. The company says it's going to phase out sales of these items. So it will sell through essentially what inventory is left in stores right now, and then we'll no longer restock those categories, like you said. Going back to those shootings, we all know the one that happened at the Walmart in El Paso, Texas, where 22 people were killed. It was four days earlier that a disgruntled employee killed two Walmart workers in Mississippi. So just the close proximity of these different things happening within their stores, I'm sure impacted The workers there themselves, just kind of the whole thought process of employees and customers. You mentioned that the CEO, Doug McMillan, had put out a memo distributed to employees. But did he mention anything about what he had been hearing from the community or just even other stores and other managers and things like that? Yeah, and I think you see people on, on both sides of this issue, so certainly have a, a lot to think through there when you're in Doug's shoes. You know, he even mentioned in his memo that he sent to employees earlier this week, You know, he owns a gun himself, and Sam Walton, founder of Walmart, was an avid hunter. So obviously, you have to think through things and take that in, into consideration. But I think you saw after those shootings, there was just a lot of the Walmart workers and employees and stores were really riled up after that and just concerned about safety, I think, more than anything out because even in the weeks after that, there were additional threats at certain Walmart locations throughout the country where either, you know, the threat of someone potentially showing up at a store with a gun or saying on Twitter, you know, I'm going to go to this Walmart location with a gun. And a few of those instances, there were arrests made of individuals, you know, no additional deaths, but just these ongoing threats. So I think Walmart realized we've got to do something here. And I think that's where the open carry decision maybe came into play. So again, like you said, at Walmart and Sam's Club location, even where there is open carry legislation on the books, they're asking customers to no longer do that. And they said that they'll start with just informing their managers at all the stores of this and to just ask customers in stores not to carry a gun, obviously, but they're going to put additional signage in stores as well over the next few weeks to kind of communicate all of these changes. 
Let's talk about one of the important aspects of this, the money, because whether people want to be on a, on a moral side of this and guns and the whole gun debate, we've all been through it many times. For Walmart, they're a company and a lot of it has to do with money. How much do they make off of this? How much are these sales a part of their mix? So in covering their business, obviously at CNBC, you know, we were all looking for kind of some figures to wrap our head around this business. So last month, they gave us an idea of their market share in this space. So they said they only made up about 2% of the market for firearms today. And so that wouldn't even put them as a top three seller in that industry. And they also said at the time they estimated that they have about a 20% share of the market for ammunition. So obviously, that's a little bit larger. Now, in following Tuesday, Day's announcement, their market share of ammunition, they said, will drop to closer to 6% to 9% of that industry. So going from 20 to a range of 6 to 9, and they think over time that will actually shrink even more. If you really want to think about the business aspect here, it's not really a high margin category to be in right. to begin with. And we had a call with the company on Tuesday as well, and the vice president of corporate affairs told us Walmart has already big sporting guns business to begin with, and so they don't think that this will really be a, a big impact to their business, I guess, that they can make up for those sales in other ways. A good comp, and I think a company that a lot of us have followed as well as Dick Sporting Goods, who has been pulling out of the hunting category following the Parkland, Florida shooting, which happened at a high school in 2018. The CEO, Ed Stagg, came out and made some pretty dramatic cutbacks in that space. And they've said that in stores, you know, where they've pulled out of hunting entirely, they've actually seen sales go up because they've replaced it with baseball and some of these other uh, categories where they're actually able to bring in even more shoppers. So as you think about the business aspect of all of this, I'm not so sure that Walmart is going to lose a lot of sales. Lauren Thomas, retail reporter at CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Another top story this week. The Trump administration has reached an agreement in principle with the Taliban to withdraw over 5,000 troops from Afghanistan over the next five months. It would all depend on the Taliban meeting certain requirements such as reduction in violence in the area. But things are not set in stone just yet. For more on this, we spoke to Deirdre Shesgreen. She's the foreign affairs correspondent at USA Today. First, the U.S. is calling this an agreement in principle. So officials are leaving some room for this to fall apart. And they're not providing a great deal of detail at this point. But as you said, it would involve, what we do know is it would involve withdrawing a little more than 5,000 American troops from Afghanistan over the next five months on the condition that the Taliban works to reduce violence and prevent Afghanistan from becoming a haven for terrorists again. And the reason that this can be called an agreement in principle is that the Afghan government has been excluded from the talks. The Taliban has refused to negotiate with the Afghan government and saying they will only sit down with President Ghani after all foreign military forces have withdrawn. With all of this kind of background and this history, it seems odd that the United States would be wanting to make a deal with them. Exactly. And the Taliban itself is a militant Islamic group. And critics are saying that the Taliban cannot be trusted to keep to this, these promises or make sure that Afghanistan doesn't become a haven again for another militant group. You're talking about how part of the deal is a reduction in violence. First of all, that's a little hard to quantify or, or you know, really hold them to. 
But hours after this announcement of this deal in principle, then we get news that the Taliban had conducted some suicide bombings against an international compound there in the Afghan capital. And they took credit for it and they said, hey, we're coming from a strong position, a strong negotiating position on this. We're not weak. You know, we're still going to handle our business here. And it's just so awkward for this all to be happening as they're signaling a possible deal. It's happening in the midst of these ongoing attacks. This war right now is a stalemate. And there's a sense that the U.S. cannot win by leaving the current troop levels where it is. And there's not appetite to increase the troop levels to a level where the U.S. could win. So the Taliban controls at least half the country right now, and they're gaining more territory by the month. And this attack that you mentioned, which killed 16 people, is an example of the state of the war. Can you just briefly tell us what are the goals of each side in this long-standing war? Because I mean, people just tend to forget. Where, what does the U.S. want to accomplish? What does the Taliban want to accomplish there? The U.S. goals in Afghanistan have changed dramatically over the 18 years that we've been involved there. You know, it started out as a desire to topple the Taliban and chase al-Qaeda out and capture Osama bin Laden. That became a much broader mission after the Taliban fell initially. And they were able to sort of defeat al-Qaeda. It became more of a nation-building mission where we were trying to promote democracy inside of Afghanistan. And under President Trump, the mission is narrowing again, where the focus is more on counterterrorism focuses, where basically the goal is to prevent Afghanistan from being used as a location where terrorists can plot attacks on the West. I think the Taliban's goal here is domestic power within Afghanistan. So they do not have international terrorist goals in terms of striking the West, but they certainly have domestic power designs. From just some reading, it seems like they control about half of the country, if not a little bit more, and they make gains all the times. You mentioned, you know, there really is not an appetite to keep troops there or increase troop levels. This has been going on for nearly 18 years. There has been the loss of 2,400 American service members, 38,000 Afghan civilians, and it's cost U.S. taxpayers almost a trillion dollars, according to researchers at Brown University. So this is expensive. There is a lot of capital loss as far as lives go, and it's just a, a very hard thing to get a handle on. I'm assuming that's why the United States is going as far as trying to strike a deal with the Taliban to end all of this. Deirdre Shesgreen, foreign affairs reporter for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. One of the more interesting stories we covered this week, China has a social credit system that rewards good citizens and punishes bad citizens for things like failing to pay debts, excessive video gaming, and criticizing the government. Punishments can range from bans on leaving the country, not letting your kids into private schools, and even being put on a public blacklist. And while this system plays out there, Silicon Valley is building a parallel system brought on by tech industry user policies. For more on this story, we spoke to Mike Elgin. He's a contributor to Fast Company about the Silicon Valley social credit system in the United States. China is, in fact, kind of descending into greater totalitarianism through technology. They're employing a lot of technology to 
crack down on dissidents, to censor free speech, etc. And it's gradually getting worse. The idea is essentially like a financial credit system where if you're irresponsible with your money in the United States, for example, you get bad credit, you don't get certain privileges, like it's harder to get a loan, it's harder to rent an apartment, those kinds of things. And so the Chinese social credit system takes that general idea and expands it in every way. So there's essentially a, a, a central nationwide system uh, that's a lot more like financial credit. And then there are little towns in China that are experimenting with various things. They, For example, if somebody, if a store owner doesn't sweep in front of their store, they lose points and they get shamed on a public website or they can't get uh, a good rate on a loan. And there's, there's a gazillion transgressions that can get you. Right. And there's a gazillion punishments. There's even some rewards, too. They'll give you points if you do some nice things. And so... In general, the Western reporting on the Chinese social credit system has been exaggerated. It's not quite as Orwellian as it sounds because most of it is experimental and most Chinese people have never even heard of it. It's not really impacting people's lives. And to the extent that they've heard of it in China, most are in favor of it because it, again, it's, it's a replacement. So in the old days, we used to manage people's behavior through laws. You know, if you, get drunk and scream at people, the police come and they say you're disturbing the peace and public drunkenness. We have laws and rules and there are punishments and you might get a fine or a ticket or jail time or something like that. So the laws and then there's social norms that are enforced in various ways. So, for example, if you're talking constantly in a theater, the theater might throw you out. This is not a law that you've broken necessarily, but the theater order has the right to take action for that theater. So these kinds of things exist in a long time. So right. social credit systems are a third system, basically. What they have in common is that a transgression in one sphere of life will get you a punishment in another sphere of life. So, for example, if you get caught playing loud music on the train, your child might not get into an elite school. You mentioned that a lot of people in China might not even know that this type of thing exists. How widespread is it? The biggest impact that it's had on people is for people who have had financial troubles, which is kind of a traditional credit score type of issue, then a lot of people are being prevented from being able to fly on airplanes or ride on trains. There's a form of it happening currently right now in Silicon Valley and, the, as I said, the big tech platforms and in the user policies that we end up you know, signing and approving without reading most of the time. But this has kind of made its way into insurance companies or social media, things like uh, WhatsApp, uh, Uber and Airbnb. There's little tiny forms of it already happening. So the way to look at this is that there are two types of transgressions. Technically, there are transgressions that are actually violations of the law. And there are transgressions that are just you're not being that nice. The reason I wrote this article is there's so much hand wringing. There's so much finger pointing at China for this totalitarian system that we've failed to sort of look at the total uh, result of various policy changes that have happened this year in various spheres of our own lives that add up to a social credit system that I believe is worse than China's. So let me give you some examples. So New York State, which is very influential in the world of insurance, has essentially issued a rule earlier this year, I think it was in May, that says insurance companies are allowed to go on people's social media accounts and, and get information there that affects people's premiums. So this is an example of activity in one sphere, in this case, social media, affecting you in another sphere 
fee or which is the, the amount you pay for insurance. So the big question then is what's wrong with this type of system? You know, I, I, a lot of people would agree, let's kick the riffraff out. If you're being unruly, you know, nobody wants you here. You know, what's the big problem with that? And it's really creating kind of an alternative legal system that is outside of the justice system. This is all in these end user agreements that we're signing on to. That's right. So in the United States, we proclaim ourselves to be a nation of laws, which is to say that we are an immigrant country. People come from all over the world. People have different values, different religions, different everything. But we all are equal in front of the law. We have a presumption of innocence. We have a right to representation. We have the right to appeal. We have all these rights. So even a, even a small matter, if you, let's say you are caught with a dog in a restaurant or you did some other transgression, or you, let's say you trashed an Airbnb, that is and should be against the law to break people's property. And then what is supposed to happen is you're supposed to get a lawyer, go to court. If you're found guilty, you pay the fine or you do some jail time or you do something or whatever, but you're protected by the Constitution. And so is the host, those of homeowner. Everybody's protected by these rules. If you follow the trend lines, we're getting to the system where law breaking like that and other transgressions aren't punished in the legal system. They're punished outside the legal system by essentially Airbnb's uh, end user license agreement and Ubers and all the other competitors to those two companies. All these companies are essentially enforcing the law without the part where you're protected by rights. There's no presumption of innocence. There's right. no appeals process in most cases. There's no right to an attorney. None of those rights are there. You just get the punishment. So let me tell you about PatronScan. PatronScan is actually a Canadian company. And they have this great product for bar owners where you have a little kiosk or a tablet or something at the front door of a bar. And somebody comes up with their fake ID and you scan it. The system will say, oh, that's a fake ID. Or this is a person who was banned by another bar. Yeah, got kicked out for fighting or something. Ago. Yeah, well, you're fighting or getting drunk or, so, you know, it's up to the bar owner or the manager to decide whether to put people on this list. But the thing is that if you're banned on the patron scan system in the United States, you're also banned from bars that use this product in the UK, in Australia and in Canada. And so you can go on vacation to the wow. UK and be turned away from a bar because somebody said you got in a fight six months ago in Milwaukee. and so. This is a whole new thing that is happening. It's not patron scan individually. It's not Uber or Airbnb individually or any of the other companies that I've mentioned or the insurance example I gave. It's the cumulative effect of all of these things. This new world we're entering into, our, our lives are increasingly involving these technology companies that have these rules and the cumulative effect is a social credit system. It's a system of punishing transgressions outside the rule of law. And I think personally, my, my big takeaway from this article is we need to stop pointing our fingers at China and start looking at what's happening with our own social credit system because we got one. Mike Elgin, opinion columnist and contributor to Fast Company. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.